Sure, I did some really stupid shit and can laugh about it and share about it, but I did not die. And that is not true for everyone. Even though I suffered from drug addiction, my sister, my only sibling, died from an eating disorder. On a weekend in September of 2007, at the age of 44, died of a heart attack in her sleep. She suffered for so many years trying to overcome this disease that just devoured her. She looked up to me for embracing recovery, and she could not understand it. She had a really hard time with recovery, even though she wanted it desperately. You want to know the true meaning of powerlessness? <laughs> I could not save her. My recovery was not strong enough for the both of us. Eating disorders. The disease no one ever talks about. Welcome to the Insanity Project. This podcast is brought to you by Insanity. Doing the same things and expecting different results. You are listening to episode five. Food is the root of all evil. Welcome to the Insanity Project. With me today, I have a guest in the studio. I have Keela Raiden. I have known Keela for 27 years. Jesus. Yeah, you were eight. I was eight years old. Keela has been battling an eating disorder for 22 years. She's been in recovery for about five and a half. Correct. Yeah. The reason I asked Keela on the show was I have known her since she was eight years old. And I saw her when she was in her disease from the beginning and through some of the early rough parts of it. And it affected our relationship. And through recovery, our relationship has healed and we've learned to respect each other and acknowledge that like, you are a really great person and I really like you. And I am so happy you're in recovery because I could see the change in you. And I wanted to bring her on the show to talk about her insanity, her recovery, and what it's like to live with an eating disorder every single day. And I saw a lot of it and it was really hard to watch. It reminded me of my sister so much. So I have a special attachment to Kayla, and it is so good to see that she's now in recovery. Kayla has decided on a career path of recovery and works in a facility where she helps others who are also seeking recovery from many different things. Yes, I am. What if you could tell us about that? So I do case management at a treatment facility, uh, an outpatient facility that has attached to it a residential, but I happen to work at their outpatient. And they, you know, cover all the bases of mental health and addiction as far as treating uh, chemical dependency, substance or substance abuse, chemical dependency are the same thing. So that's a little redundant. Um, so they do that. They do eating disorders. They do sex and love addiction and uh, just straight up mental health. So uh, pretty comprehensive in terms of what they're trying to tackle there. And as far as case management, it's basically just like anything that is not clinical in nature. So whatever, anything that is not like clinical or therapeutic in nature is sort of my domain. So you were there every single day with disease in the trenches. All day long, every day. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, no, and I love it. I live for that shit. Yeah. Yeah. I had many friends who went through recovery and decided that a recovery field was the path for them. It was like a calling that they needed to, you know, listen to. It's, uh, yeah, and it's something that I think I, I, I found my way into based on my own uh, experience in treatment, et cetera. Um, and had I not, or had that not been part of my history or part of my past, I don't know that I would ever have thought like, yeah, I want to be a case manager. Like who, who has that thought? Um, so it is, I think, definitely attributed to like my time in treatment. Kayla also has a blog online called Dead Dad Diaries that I absolutely love. Aww. I will put the link in the show description so you can find it. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little about that or where you got the inspiration for that and what brought you to do this. Hey, that's so nice. Um, called Dead Dad Diaries. It's actually the product of a treatment assignment that I received back in the way back. Um, my last or most recent round of treatment was a year after my dad's death. And I, I think I was offered the suggestion to write my dad a letter. And so I did. And it then sort of initiated this I don't know. I like, I just, I felt like it was a way for me to connect with somebody who was no longer like physically here and keep that relationship sort of alive. So I just continued to write my dad letters, put them on the internet, I guess. So yeah, it was uh, at its inception, it was very much about my dad and the loss of my dad and like specifically about that one thing. And then it sort of broadened, I think, to be more inclusive and be more about just like, grief and loss in general, and then realized at a certain point after I had been in recovery for a little bit, that I was very much, you know, kind of grieving the loss of my eating disorder, because it was such a huge relationship, you know, for so long. And there is loss, like there is sadness around that. And it was a huge part of my identity and my life and all that. So a way to sort of process like whatever those feelings are and have been and will be. Yeah, it's very honest. You dive down deep where a lot of people don't like to go. We are really good at looking at others, but not really good at looking at ourselves, are we? <laughs> it's not our strong suit, no. You really look at yourself and always look at what part did you play? What is wrong with me? Why am I like this? <laughs> and then try to seek a solution <laughs> in the blog. And I find it really honest and right. Yeah. Yeah. What damage have I caused along the way and how do I make those repairs and yada, yada. Thanks. You know, it's, and that's something that's really hard for a lot of people to do. I mean, it, yeah, I think like it, it feels like a pretty self-centered thing to just write exclusively about yourself. But I also like, that's just sort of, that I've always written that way. Like I, my brother is a writer and writes both like fiction and nonfiction, but I've never been able to write fiction. And so I'll leave that to him. Uh, I just have always written like personal essays and shit like that. So that's kind of what this, that's just a compilation of personal essays, I guess. You also have an Instagram profile, which I find absolutely hysterical. You have such a dry wit. I'm glad you find it entertaining. That link will also show up in the show notes. 
Well, thanks. Uh, thanks. Um, but yes, I do. I've, I, I used to be quite prolific on the Instagram, uh, updating it, you know, several times a day, uh, in certain moments. And I, I've, I've since slowed down. Uh, thank, thankfully, I think most people are appreciative of that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm trying to be a little more selective with what I, what I put on there, but, uh, it's been referred to as like my pseudo Twitter because I just put a lot of tweets on there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of sarcasm. Well, a lot of sarcasm and a little bit of, uh, opinions. Yeah. Opinions about things. Yeah, I have some of those. So maybe you can tell us some of the insanity about an eating disorder and your recovery process. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have things that fall into that category. Um, I think, like, for me, what might have been the most insane aspect of, like, my shit was how far in denial I was and for how long. I couldn't see it for what it was until I was... 11, 12 years into it. So it started when I was maybe, I don't know, like 12 or 13. And it wasn't until I was maybe 24 that I was able to recognize that something was amiss, that things were not as they should be. So I think for me, that was the most insane. I mean, I guess like the classic definition of the whole like insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Like in in regards to like that particular definition, I think just like being in an addiction, any form is an act of insanity because you're essentially trying to self-medicate, doing it various ways that are all essentially the same and it's yielding the same result which is that it's making your life unmanageable and destructive. It's, you know, completely destructive. And yet you keep trying to find ways in which you can make it functional in your life. Like you keep trying to negotiate with the thing and being like, well, maybe if I try doing it this way, it'll, it'll find a place in, in my life or it'll achieve the desired result or whatever. I had to exhaust like every possible avenue for me to finally be like, I am insane. I keep doing the same fucking thing, even though like, you know, variety of it looks different. Like they're different. They are fundamentally the same. So anyway, yeah, that for me, was like, that's insane to keep thinking that if I continue on this path, it will eventually bring me to my desired destination, which when you're, you know, in an eating disorder, so much of it, and this is like, so this is like the really challenging part to explain to somebody who hasn't struggled with this in their life. So much of it feels like it's so connected to body image and attaining the body that you're chasing. And that's really how it like presents at least like psychologically, like you think that it's about that. And then you have to be told by, you know, innumerable professionals that it has nothing to do with the body, which is true. Like it doesn't, but that's how it it feels like it does. And so you're chasing this unattainable thing and driving yourself literally insane doing it because it's, it's the one is too many, a thousand's never enough thing of like, no matter where you get in terms of your physical shape, it'll never be enough. It'll never be small enough. So yeah, that's insane. You know, and it's exactly all the things you were saying apply to every addiction 
no matter what it is. You know, yeah. people like to like, well, I'm a drug addict, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a, it's like, no, we're all the same. It's all the same shit, dude. And, uh, you know, everything you were saying, that's exactly the way I felt. It's like, and it took years for me to acknowledge, like, maybe I have a problem instead of like, oh, when did you figure it out? Like, dude, I didn't figure it out for a really long time. And I tried over and over to try different things. Well, if, you know, if I just don't do any more Coke anymore, or I just mm-hmm. do this on the weekends or whatever. And it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Addiction is addiction is addiction. And your, and your brain lies to you. Right. And it's those like endless negotiations of like, let me try it this way. Let me try it this way. I haven't tried this yet. Let me see if that works. And like, none of it works. None of it works. But yeah, I mean, I work in substance abuse primarily. I mean, like where I, the facility I work deals with both mental health and substance abuse. And the two to me are pretty inextricably linked. Although we do have clients that don't have any substance abuse. It's just purely mental health. Constantly I'm reminded of how incredibly similar all addiction is like yes like the the way it presents the way it manifests like that's unique to whatever the addiction might be but like at its foundation it's all it's all the same it's all the same and like for like a big thing that i have tried doing not only for myself but also like encourage clients i'm working with to to look at is like, what is the engine? Like, what is the thing that's generating this and making it run? Um, Because without really identifying that piece, it's very hard to dismantle it. If you don't know where it's stemming from or where its origin is, it's, it feels like nearly impossible to try to tackle it. That's exactly right. Yes. It's, it's all about the core. What is the root cause? Where did this come from? Because it's uh, not like you ate a, a bad grilled cheese sandwich or I had, you know, <laughs> I, I am a doobie, you know, a seed popped in my eye. And now, you know, it's like bad things happen to me. It's like it all comes from somewhere else. And, you know, and my sister had an eating disorder and and we were raised the same and hers manifested that way and mine manifested the other way. Yeah. But in the end, the core of both of ours we're both the same and, and we would like talk about it. We realize that, you know, the root cause of what we have is the same. Mm-hmm. What it was it for you? Somewhere. Yeah. What was, what's your engine? What's your engine? Like, what was it for you? What do you think if you had to like distill it into? Oh, geez. Mine came uh, from childhood. Um, you know, my mother was an alcoholic and she was very abusive and uh, we both suffered from low self-esteem and you never amount to anything and you're just a bump on a log. And my sister was always too fat and I was just too stupid and lazy and, you know, and years and years and years and years of that and never being told that we were ever good at anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and and my sister, you know, looked at body images, very important. And so did my mother. She was extremely judgmental. And, uh, you know, my sister got the the raw end of the deal on that, the body image one. And I got the raw image on the one that, like, you're just never going to succeed at anything. Right. Wow. You know, and years and years of pounding that out. You know, and, you know, I was raised in an alcoholic family. So alcohol, cigarettes just a normal part of life. Yeah. It's so interesting. And luckily, you know, I was able to seek recovery and it took my sister a really long time to see it. Actually not to see it, to try to, gosh, she actually 
was she used to go to this uh, Radar Institute in Long Beach. Oh yeah, I know Radar. Uh, for yeah, this yeah, place has been like around forever. Yeah, yeah, and she just couldn't grasp any of it. It was really hard for her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know like the outcome and that eventually she did not succumb to it, but it, it got the best of her. It did. It got the best of her, you know, and you know, she died of a heart attack at 44 years old. What do addicts do? They, uh, you know, they pursue, you know, like a bartender who's an alcoholic or a, a pharmacist who's a, you know, pill popper. Uh, she was a fitness instructor. She has a master's degree in sports medicine. So she, her, reco- her recovery, her addiction ruled her life in every nook and cranny to the point where she would excel at school to become this thing so she could exercise all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You make every sort of like concession for it. You'll do whatever you need to do to keep it alive and well. And it's like, it is truly like a superhuman effort to, to conquer it and to like, not allow it to dictate the entirety of your life or kill you. I mean, like, that's the harsh reality is that it will eventually kill you. I just like, I had a client that I was, I mean, this has happened so many times, but this one was felt different. I had a client that I found out like two days ago, just passed away. And it, 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 it's, you know, like when you work in treatment, it's kind of par for the course, but you also need to like not steal yourself so much that you end up completely callous and unaffected, but it's hard. Like it's just the nature of the beast is that it, it's lethal. And I think, you know, a lot of, for me, like, I think I was telling you this, but like, just for the sake of sharing, um, at the beginning of, or like the very early stages of my shit. Um, this is something that I have been told secondhand from my brother. I don't remember having this conversation ever, but I guess he one time asked me pretty like directly, what are you trying to do? Like, what are you trying to accomplish with this? And I think I said, according to him, something to the effect of, I'm just trying to be small enough that I disappear. And so like passive suicide is pretty much what I was aiming for. I was not, uh, I don't know what word to proper would properly describe. Uh, I wasn't capable of just like taking myself out in any other way that was more aggressive or proactive. Mm -hmm. I was just trying to like kind of slowly, quietly kill myself. And Um, that's what it was for like a really long time. But the funny thing about it, I always like to try to think of the functionality of addiction because as like insidious and terrible as it is, it does serve a purpose. Like it's there for a reason and to try to think about like the functionality of mine. And I think it kept me alive. Like it was both killing me and keeping me alive because without it, without the behaviors, without the you know, coping skills, maladaptive though they were, they were coping skills. And without those, I don't know what I would have done. So on one hand, it's like, you know, I'm filled with regret and a sense of time lost or time wasted. But on another hand, I'm like, I think I needed it. It like served a very significant purpose in my life. And, you know, it's also one of those things where they talk about 
how you become stunted kind of at the age when your addiction manifested or started to appear, which I think is certainly true. Like I definitely feel in some ways that it really limited my growth. Um, but I also think the opposite is true as well, where it, it imbues you with like this, I don't know, like it's character building in a certain way. It provides insight into just like the human psyche and you become more introspective and interested in like how the mind works and all this stuff that, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say that without sounding like pretentious or being like, well, because I've been in an addiction, I'm somehow superior, which is absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that the, the stuntedness is sort of balanced out by the acceleration of growth, if that makes sense. It does. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it was. It was a complete coping me mechanism because I did not know how to live life. And this is what I knew. But on the other hand, it taught me so much. I, I always felt like I had insight that other people did not have. I mean, I can say that because I survived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've had yeah. many people not survive it. And that was their insight. But um, I, I totally understand what you mean that it, it made me who I am. And I look at my addiction years as I embrace it. I actually love it because it, it, it taught me so much it, and it made me who I am today. And I actually like myself today. So, you know, it's like that helps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the thing of like, there is, I don't know. I'm one of those people who tends to believe there is no such thing as time wasted. I think that like every failure is a lesson and you learn something, you learn more from your failures than you do your successes typically. And so one of the things that I try to like remind myself to do is not fail backwards, but fail forwards. So if I have a failure or like some kind of setback to not give that permission to like catapult me even further back than I already am, but instead propel me forward and use it as like, okay, well, this is what I learned from that experience. And this is how I can now apply the lesson and continue to hopefully make progress because, you know, as you're well aware with recovery, it's not linear. It, uh, you take one step back and 10 steps or one step forward and 10 steps back as mm. you know, we all know. Um, but as long as you're continuing to like the general trajectory is forward, I think it's fine. And you know, that's, but that's also like the really hard thing about relapse is that yes, it's, important. It's an important part of recovery, but sometimes people don't survive their relapses. And that's the scary, that's the scary part. I've had friends who never came back from, they used to call it like, I went out and did more research. I'm like, yeah, dude, it's like, uh, yeah, you know, and some people don't, it's just the way it is. I've known a lot of folks who have had that one relapse that really something like just shifts in them and something clicks and all of a sudden they're like, well, I got that out of my system. Don't need to do that ever again. Um, and then they move forward and they find their way into recovery and they're able to sustain it and great. And then there are other people who are like, yeah, I need to try this one more time. I have unfinished business and that's it. Like they go out and they die and it's heart wrenching. And um, I think though, like, the idea of removing the stigma and 
normalizing mental health and normalizing these kinds of conversations because I'm kind of under the assumption that everybody has their version of my story. Like I am not Mm -hmm. unique. We are not unique. Everybody has something that they're quietly battling. And a friend of mine actually she posted something on like social media and it was something along the lines of you're having a really bad day today. You know who else is having a really bad day? Probably everyone. (laughs) And it's just this thing of like, we're all fucking struggling. Like it's, it's hard. Life is not easy. And no matter how that sort of, I guess, presents in our day-to-day lives, it could look really different person to person. And the people who seem to be the most grounded and adjusted can be the most fucked up. And we, especially like with the advent of social media, we only see this curated version of what people's lives look like, how they want us to see their lives, not how they actually are. And so we're constantly comparing and like, I don't know, it's whatever. It's a whole other conversation, I suppose. But yeah, it's important to sort of keep that in check and remember that just because you're having a really hard time doesn't mean you're the only one. Got that right. Yeah, I believe everybody is. I mean, just because I'm in recovery and clean doesn't mean my disease goes away. Mm-hmm. It's always there. I always look at it as like it's in the hallway doing push-ups, you know, just waiting, <laughs> waiting yeah. for me. You know, it's so true. On, mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. me, literally, that's what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> doing squats and push-ups. When I talk to my wife about it, I call it my lizard brain. But I used to call it Bob. You know that I'm a, a big Twin Peaks fan. <laughs> so Twin Peaks was a television show in the '90s. Yeah, and uh, they had this um, this evil entity that lived inside of people and his name was Bob. And I really identified with Bob. <laughs> this parasite. Like, I, I totally get yeah, that. That's, yeah. yeah, I got that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, you're the reason that I'm a Twin Peaks fan. So I know, I know all about it. But yeah, that's such a good. Analogy. Yeah, yeah it's such a good analogy. Uh, it's so appropriate. And I always know it's there. So I guess the question is, is like, I always know when it's rearing its head. I can feel it because I know it so well and I've identified it so much through all the writing and, you know, everything that I know when my disease is active. It's talking to me. Do you know when yours is talking to you and do you have a name for it? Do you call it something like a a separate entity of yourself? I don't, but now that I'm like kind of considering this, like naming it, it's definitely named Penelope because when I was a kid and I was being like an asshole, my parents would say, that's not Kayla. This is Penelope. What is Penelope doing here? She was like my weird alter ego that my parents named and uh, became like the scapegoat for all bad behaviors. Like, oh, it wasn't me. That was Penelope. So for sure, it's Penelope. Like, absolutely. Um, it's really funny. I haven't thought about that in a long time, but um, yeah, I mean, for me, it, it's like any time that I make a choice that doesn't feel rooted in recovery, which is, you know, on any given day, there are a billion choices that you have to make and not all of them are going to feel like they're moving you forward. Um, but if I notice that there's like a, an increase in poor choices being made, um, you know, for me, the the outlets of expression are 
food and exercise. So for some people with eating disorders, it's one or the other, some it's both, some there are other, you know, outlets that I don't have. Um, but if I notice any kind of like increase in exercise or decrease in food, I'm like immediately, you know, warning bells go off and I start to consider like what's, what's actually going on here because it's, it's not just that I felt like I needed to do an extra 45 minutes of like some bullshit class today or like eat, you know, 50% less than what I would normally. It's like, there's, it's tied to something. It's connected to something. Um, and in those moments, it's hard because it's like, you don't want to drive yourself insane by trying to determine the root of it because sometimes you don't even know. It feels like it's completely arbitrary. It's a lot of it, I think can be chalked up to like, this is just like routine for me. This is habit. This is a learned behavior. Um, and it's not always so like intentional or, uh, connected to something that you can identify easily, but you don't want to be like ignorant about it and just go like, Oh, I don't know. This is just how I am. So, Oh, you know, you have to like do that investigative work, but then also know when to stop and know when to say like, I don't know what's going on. I just know I'm having a hard time right now. And that's when you start to like try to implement a little bit of grace and a little bit of kindness and just tell yourself you're doing the best you can. And not every day is going to look the same as the day prior, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely have things that trigger like, you know what? I need to, I need to take a look at that. Like what is going on? Right. I, yeah. I know it pretty good. So I had a friend who explained it pretty well. Uh, He's like, you know, if I get up, you know, and, you know, my toothbrush, you know, breaks when I'm brushing my teeth, I'm like, that fucking toothbrush. And you know, I go out of my parking lot, you know, my driveway, and somebody, like, you know, tries to cut me off. and like, that fucking asshole. And then, you know, I go to 7-Eleven and trying to get a cup of coffee, and the dickhead in front of me is being a jerk. He says, I run into five assholes before 10 a.m. Maybe I'm the asshole. Ah, I love that. You know what I call that though? I call that a red light day when it, you know, like a day when it's like you hit every red light. It's just like, nothing is going <laughs> your way. It's like a Murphy's law day. Um, yeah, I call those red light days and those can be so triggering because like they can make you really want to engage in behavior. That's like soothing or comforting because you're just so out of sorts. But I think, and I'm not, like really into this whole thing of like the universe and like energy and the cosmos. I don't know. But I do think that like when you have a day like that, that kind of is the universe trying to communicate something to you. And normally that thing is either like slow down or pay attention. Yeah. I believe um, choice, good choices are given to me all the time. It's up to me to pick the right ones. And sometimes I don't. And uh, yeah. And, and I, and when I go back and look at the choice, like, why did I do that? Like, oh, yeah, I think I know why I did that. And I, I can kind of root it back to, you know, my disease. Like, yeah, why would I have done that? That's not very spiritual or <laughs> yeah, yeah. healthy or, yeah, I was like, damn. But like you said, it's like, you know, we make mistakes all the time, you know, but if we move in a forward direction, like, oh, you know what? Maybe when that happens next time, I need to stop and think is this what's going on? And maybe I should change that. You know, like, you know, like they say, you can change your day at any moment. You know, I was like, right. you're not having a good day. You know what? You, it, 
You have a choice to change it. It's up to you. It's hard, but it can be done. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. That's the thing. My therapist, I used to have a therapist who would drill into me the, the idea of doing the hard, easy versus the easy, hard. And what she meant by that was you do the harder thing first and it will eventually make your life easier. Um, on the opposite end, if you do the easier thing first, it will tend to complicate your life and make it that much harder. So when I'm like faced with a decision, I do this all the time where I'm like, what's the harder thing right now? And the harder thing is usually the more recovery based choice and the choice that I quote unquote should make. Now, do I make that choice? Not always, but it's something that I at least like take into consideration Exactly. Actually, you know, that's really good. It's like, that's exactly what it is. You know, the path of least resistance is not always the best way to go. You know, sometimes the, the hard thing to do is my, my experience is the hard thing to do is usually the right thing to do. Exactly. Because if it was easy, we'd all be doing it. So the hard thing to do is always the character building, the, the enlightenment, and, you know, things just kind of work out better for you. And there's no cheating, stealing, or lying going on. In- <laughs> right. And also, as far as the word resistance, like that to me is a really informative feeling like if i'm feeling resistant towards something yeah then i'm like i feel like i should probably do this because i really don't want to and sometimes you've got to do the thing that you just don't want to do um and i i you know i was raised in a certain way where i was conditioned to take the path of least resistance and not have to like work hard sometimes (laughs) um and to like actively fight against that conditioning has been a challenge, but that's, you know, part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I, I grew up just the opposite. Like I had to work my ass off mm-hmm. for everything. My parents made me, you know, you know, I look back as like, Oh, those fuckers, you know, but I look back like, well, they built me, you know, gave me some good work ethic and character and value of money, that kind of thing. Even though I didn't really acknowledge it for quite a few years, you know, there were some good things growing up them being hard asses weren't, wasn't always a bad thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And at the time, you know, when you're in the moment of having like very permissive parents or parents that feel like they don't have the standards that other parents have, where they just allow you to like do things that you probably shouldn't be doing. It feels great. Cause you're like, Oh my, my, my dad's so cool. He lets me like, you know, f- fill in the blank, do whatever I want. Um, or, my dad's awesome. Like I had to go to the DMV to get this done, but he did it for me and I didn't have to lift a goddamn finger. You're like, that's uh, wow. What a, I'm so lucky. What a, what a treat. And then you grow up and you're like, Oh, that was such a disservice. Like you didn't do me any favors by doing like you created a really like <laughs> incompetent <laughs> adult who just like <laughs> didn't know how to live life. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So it's like, I, you know, my dad died a couple of years ago and it's been a thing of like that. And my brother and I talk often about the idea that that was his way of being like, I can't, I can't continue to like show you or like do life for you. Like you have to do life now because he wasn't when he was alive, ever able to really do that and like set those boundaries and say like, I'm not going to do this for you. This is on you. Um, so it's been like a, a process of like growing up in the past six years in a way that we never really had the ability or the permission to do. 
So little backgrounds, like I, I've known Kayla uh, for quite a few years. Uh, I used to um, date her mother. And so when I first met Kayla, she was eight years old. So your mother was the same way. She just, you know, and she had all kinds of other guilt going on there. So yeah. she would just do everything for you kids. And I remember telling her like, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is say no. And she just didn't understand that. Like you're not, Teaching them, <laughs> you know, and they and they both did. They both suffered from guilt, and they just wanted to make everybody happy. And yeah, when I when I talk about my parents or explain their parenting style, I always say, especially with my dad, like my mom, I have you know things to say about my mom in that relationship. But like with my dad, I feel like he very much parented from a place of guilt, and things that sort of transpired when my brother and I were younger were like, he overcompensated for, I guess, this perceived distress we were under and like, didn't want to make our lives harder or more complicated than they already were. And it was all obviously coming from like a very well-intentioned place. But as adults, we have both suffered the consequences, which is being kind of like stunted, you know? Um, And I think especially like my brother, funnily enough, also has an eating disorder and it's, you can't very well like look at our upbringing and rule out nurture. Like there's something to be said for the way that we were raised. And like, I'm not, obviously I'm not blaming my parents for anything, but I think there's a lot that, that happened when we were kids that was very formative and obviously like it played out how it played out. And, but that's the thing is like to not allow that to become an excuse as to why we can't grow up. And I came from a non-loving family. So, you know, at Mm -hmm. least I got told no a lot, but I don't think it was to teach me lessons or understandings. And, and I mean, some of it was, of course it was, but I believe a lot of it was just because they're hard asses and they just wanted to, (laughs) make my life miserable but on the other hand taught me valuable lessons at the same time i know which one is right i don't know there there is no right or wrong it just is i think like a nice healthy balance of the two would be great but i learned a lot of lessons from my you know growing up from my parents and uh but you know it was different so when i would see your parents doing it was very strange to me. I just didn't understand it. And, uh, yeah, I, know. Know, I mean, I understood it because they just loved you both to death, but it was, it was very different. Yeah. yeah I can imagine. I mean, like, I, yeah, the, those styles of child rearing could not be more different. Um, so I, from your vantage point, it must've been like, what the fuck are they doing? <laughs> what is happening here? But they weren't beating you no, either. Right, so, right. you know, like, oh, yeah, so at least they nice. got that yeah. going for them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, it's funny. Was there some point, cause I know I felt this, that at some point, and this is usually near the end when I was reaching my bottom and actually a lot of times I, I felt hopeless but near the end, I felt like there is no cure for what is wrong with me. And at the time, I had no idea really what was wrong with me. And I'm 30 years old. So I'm 30 years old and I have like, why is life just suck for me? You know, I'm flipping burgers in a diner for $6.25. I'm 30 years old. I'm living in an alley in a shed. 
with no heat, no windows. Why, why do bad things keep happening to me? And I couldn't understand it. Luckily, uh, somebody that I knew got into recovery and she told me about it. I'm like, I think I want that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think like the, and this might be like a controversial opinion, but I think a lot of addicts really assume the role of the victim, like a lot victimize themselves. And I think that's the product of having been victims in the past. And then they just turn around and inflict that abuse on themselves because that's what they know and that's what they think they deserve. So that whole thing of like, why me? And why is my life so much harder than anyone else's life? It's again, doing that thing of just like not removing the blinders and seeing that you're not the only one suffering and that things generally are not easy for people. And I think a big like component of like the victim role is not being able to assume any like personal responsibility for anything. Like everything is somebody else's fault. Like there's just blame is being placed everywhere other than on you. And when you think about it, like you're the common denominator in your own life, like you're the, you're the thing. And so like being able to assume some of that responsibility and take accountability and say like, I am the reason that I am so fucked up right now. It's not my parents. It's not the way I was raised. It's not society. It's me. I think the opposite of a victim is a survivor and somebody who can overcome rather than succumb to their circumstances. And it's very empowering when you realize like you don't have to be a product of your environment. You don't have to allow your past to dictate your future. You can kind of write the story yourself. Like all that shit can be very like, yeah, empowering. I remember the first time I realized that that um, all the bad things that were happening to me was a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like where's my part? Right. And where do, where is my part? And basically the fourth step, every single question is, what is my part? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. That that immediately removes you from that role of just being like consummate victim of like, oh, life is just happening to me and I am, you know, a victim of my circumstances, blah, blah, blah. Like when you are able to say like, no, I actually contributed to this. That is really eye-opening and can allow for like progress to actually be made. There's a freedom in that. And I remember the, I can still remember it 30 years ago, the feeling of like, oh my God, you know, it was like a deep breath, like, you know, shock of like, (gasps) what? And then I remember the first time that I made a spiritual choice about something and something good happened. And it was because of the choice I made that something good happened to me, in in my opinion of what I think is good. And I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, because I used to think if everyone would just give me what I want and leave me the fuck alone and and get out of my face, everything would be great. And they had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think like the other thing that you said that was so like interesting was about the like thinking, I think addicts, especially like really people struggling with mental health in any capacity, we have a tendency to really exceptionalize ourselves and think like, I'm the only one who could feel this level of misery or I'm the only one who like, and on the other side of that recovery is possible for everybody other than me. And we are somehow like the exception to everything and to like get out of that and into a place of like, we're not that different people who have achieved recovery and myself. Like I can do that if I make 
X and Y choices. It's all about like the choices that we make. So really like embracing the idea that you are not special. <laughs> I am not special. I am not special. I'm like everybody else. Nope. Not unique. My sure, like my 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 stories are unique to me and like yes, they all are very like individualized, but in the grand scheme of things, no, I'm not that unique. No, so it's funny you mentioned it because um you know, I talk about this in another podcast is when I went to my very first meeting and, you know, I'm 30 years old, I had long hair, I'm still physically okay. And I go to this meeting and, oh, and these people, oh, they are serious drug addicts. They got some real fucked up shit going on. I'm like, <laughs> these people really need this place. I, you know, I'm starting to think like, you know, I'm, I might not be that bad. But these people and this 60 year old woman gets up and starts telling her story and she is telling my story. And I'm thinking a 60 year old woman is telling my story and it's like a needle piercing my heart. Like, oh, my God, this is exactly what it's like. And then I start looking around the room after the meeting and I realize that I had more in common with them than they had with me. <laughs> Like, I am just like you, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I th there are a couple of, man, there are a couple of things that just came up for me. Like, the the thing of, first of all, the importance of storytelling and sharing your story and not being ashamed or embarrassed by your past, but rather, like, not necessarily proud of it, but not having anything on it. Like I, for me, like my past is like neutral territory. Like I don't have any real emotional attachment to any of it, which is why I can talk about it, I think. But yeah, the thing of how important it is to just be candid and transparent with people. And I think dishonesty is such a waste of time because talking of not feeling like there is such a thing as a waste of time. I think dishonesty is a waste of time because the truth will always reveal itself. Like it always does. So I'm always just like, lead with the truth. You know, it's going to save you some time in the long run. And it's easy to remember. <laughs> it's so much easier to remember. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it's just become a normal part of my recovery. And it's always funny because when I ask friends or colleagues or employers uh, what they think, I always want an honest reaction. I will say, please be honest. I look at criticism as a strength. It's not going to hurt my feelings. I'm not going to hate you. Please be honest so I can be a better person or increase my skills somehow. I get more from that. And people look at me like, it's really odd to them. They don't understand that. It's like, because mm -hmm. that's not what people usually want to do. Oh, it's great. Or, oh, yeah. Or you look fantastic. Or, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's very odd for people to speak the truth. At least that's my interpretation. Yeah, I'm the product of two major people pleasers. And so it's it's something that I have actively had to like fight against. I, I see it in myself. I see it all the time where I, you know, something as trivial as somebody being like, oh, have you seen this movie? It's so good. And instead of just being like, no, say, oh, yeah, I saw it. it's great. Like, why? Why would I, why would I lie about something like that? It's so weird. But then really, when you think about it, you want your people are longing for connection. They want to be able to like relate to somebody, but I think it's so much, it, it allows for such stronger connection when you're authentic than when you like manufacture something or try to assume a role that 
is not, you know, inherently yours. And so I'd much rather somebody be like, yeah, you know what, this thing that you did, I don't like it. <laughs> and like, here's why, here's why I don't like it rather than, oh yeah, it's good. When really they're like, this was a piece of shit, you know? I'd much rather hear the truth. I mean, it's it's a harder pill to swallow for sure, but like ultimately right. it's so much more beneficial. It is. Yeah. When I was using, you know, I never told the truth. It was always about oh, no. lying to get away with whatever or to th- make things work in my favor, whatever that meant, you know, because <laughs> life worked out really well for me. Right, right, right. You know, near the end, you know, it was as great. it does. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. it does. Right. Yeah. Doing th- thriving. All those years of lying and cheating just, you know, whew, really yeah. paid off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> paid off for me. Yeah. I know it's insane. Like to think that, I don't know, that those types of choices or behaviors will like lead to anything positive. <laughs> it's just like, what? That's insane. Like what were, what were we, what were we thinking? Like it's diluted, but you know, it is what it is. In my case, it, you know, my addiction just destroyed every single relationship I ever had. Family members, girlfriends, everything. Friends, because I did all the same things to all of them. You know, I lied, cheated, and stealed. Let's see. So how did it affect your relationships? Or was yours so, because I know my sister was just shut in. She just, you know, she became, it's, it's an isolation disease. Yep. And it was really hard for us to connect during the really bad years for her. And I felt so bad and I didn't know what to do because at this time I'm in recovery and she's not. And she never went into recovery. She tried. But anyway, our relationship suffered, I believe, because she was just so internally isolated and couldn't connect with anyone. Yeah, that's really, really um, prevalent in eating disorders. It's a very internal addiction. Whereas like with substance, there tends to be a lot of collateral damage, a lot of, it's more of an explosion, whereas an eating disorder is an implosion. And like, no, it's very hard for people to see it. First of all, unless you like look the part as far as being sickly or obese. Like I, if you're on either end of the spectrum, people will look at you and be like, Oh, that's an eating disorder. If you look like me and I look just pretty like normal these days, you would never know like the, the degree to which I still struggle. It's pretty imperceptible, but as far as how it ruined relationships, I think what you were saying about Sean is like really applicable to me. Like I was so isolated and it was self-imposed. And I think the the reason for that is when you don't have any sort of relationship with yourself, it makes it impossible to try to cultivate relationships with other people. And that's the part of like being in an addiction is like you're in a relationship with your addiction. Like that's your relationship. And that's the one that's thriving. And that's the one that's, you know, being fed the most and being watered the most and being tended to the most and everything else kind of falls by the wayside. And yeah, with, with substance, there tends to be a lot more external, like lying, cheating, stealing, but with eating disorders, it's a lot more internalized. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring, this up just because um, one of the great, uh, I don't know, regrets that I have in life, I suppose, um, is the way that I treated you. You were collateral damage for me. I was not kind to you. I, as you mentioned, you entered my life when I was like eight. And so this was sort of like on the rise, hadn't quite surfaced yet. 
but I, for a variety of reasons, was not kind. And I, you know, blame the dissolution of your relationship with my mom on myself. And it took a very, very long time for me to like, kind of move past that or like, at least be an acceptance of it. So just being able to have this conversation with you is probably the most healing thing that I could do for myself and my own just, I don't know, self-flagellation and feeling like I really disrupted something that could have been great. Um, and having to trust that things happen the way they do for a reason. And there are probably a lot of extenuating circumstances that I'm not even aware of and that's fine. But yeah, like, and who's to say, like, had I not been struggling with my mental health at the time, would I have been a kinder human? Probably. But I don't know. Like, I just, I, it's, it's impossible to make those kinds of predictions. I just know that like, I've carried a lot of guilt and regret and remorse and like all of these really lovely feelings based on our relationship. And so, yeah, I don't know. Don't beat yourself up. You were eight years old. <laughs> I know. Your parents are divorced. You go through all the things that a kid goes through when their parents get divorced. It's a lot. You know, and I met your mom in, in, uh, in meetings, you know, because she had a, a drug problem from the previous boyfriend. That she was. And here's, here's this other new drug addict coming in and, you know, and you're eight years old and, you know, you're going to take my mom away, yada, yada, yada. You know, and, and all the things that go on with divorce, because I came from a divorce family. It's so funny how your life, um, like, really echoes mine and my sister's. Uh, so, you know, at the time... You were a child, you know, and so there was a lot of acceptance in that. And, you know, and I'm not your dad. And so you had a great dad who was a really great guy. You know, and, and as you got older, you know, and I started seeing like, okay, uh, this isn't right. Because I knew what eating disorder looked like because, I, you know, I went through it with my sister. And, you know, and it was really hard for your parents to understand that. You know, and, and I know you feel a lot of uh, regret and sadness over what happened and had nothing to do with you. Why I left. Um, I know. I know it, it. I know you went through that. I know you did. There were other circumstances. My, I had another life pulling at me in San Diego that I had to attend to, you know. And and my sister moved down here, and I tried to save her also, and I couldn't. And there was just a lot of things, you know, that I had to do. Your mom and I have. We still we still talk. You know, we still text mm -hmm. each other and have conversations. You know, she was telling me, you know, the, the, about going into treatment and recovery. And, you know, what I saw you, and you were in treatment a few times while we were together. And and that's the greatest part. It's like you weren't just some evil child. <laughs> and, yes, were times hard? Yes, sometimes it was really hard to deal with. But you know what? Dealing with addiction is hard to deal with from standing on the outside. My family fucking hated me. <laughs> it's like I was so hard to deal with. Like, we don't want him around. Yeah. I mean, the thing, honestly, that like kills me is the fact that I'll never be able to have a conversation like this with my dad, where there was so much left unsaid. And like the way I, I the mistreatment was not specific to you. I also was terrible to him. I was terrible to my mom in certain moments. I was Jeremy and my brother and I had a very contentious relationship. And to not 
have the opportunity ever to like sit down with my dad and apologize and really like make amends. Like that's fucked up. Um, but you just have to sort of know that he died knowing that I feel the way I do about him and that I love him unconditionally and that all the things, you know, um, but to be able to have the opportunity to like have this conversation with you, I can't even tell you like the, what kind of weight that carries. I know Kayla, I know. And you're an adult now, so <laughs> barely, you know, and me, your mom and your dad would sit around a table and we would talk about you. And I didn't have a lot of input. It was mostly listening, but you know, I was there. Your dad's a great guy. He doesn't hold me as like the evil entity is like, you know, cause I'm dating your mom. He just loved the shit out of you. And they were both confused and they just wanted to help and they didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what to do either. You know, at this time you're like 15, 16, 14. Like, what do you do at that age? I don't know. Yeah. And that's like one of the things that I've kind of grappled with in my career and working with people who are struggling with addiction and mental health is like, what is my part here? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? I once had somebody ask me what I did for a living. I told them and they're like, oh, so you like help like fix people. And I was like, no, 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 that's absolutely not what I do. I think my job is to listen, to see and hear, to see people who have felt very unseen and hear people who have felt very unheard and just quietly share space. Like it's not my job to fix. I'm not a mechanic and you are not a fucking broken down automobile. Like people don't need to be fixed. They need to heal. And I think healing happens when somebody feels seen and heard. And so I don't know, like I feel, I feel like my parents did obviously the best they could under very, very challenging circumstances. But if I were to dole out any advice, which I don't really like doing, but I feel like they could have listened more or at least, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I wouldn't have even been vocal if they had been listening. And I was so, you know, inside of myself that I couldn't express or verbalize or put vocabulary to what was going on. But part of me also feels like they, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to place any blame. Like that's not what I'm trying to do. I just feel like a lot of people who struggle with what we have struggled with, my mom included, my everybody I know has to a certain or have to a certain extent felt unseen. And I think that's part of the value too. in like sharing your story and creating a dialogue around this is, um, it's not something that gets talked about often enough. And there is still a lot of shame associated with it and stigma and all that. And to kind of neutralize that and just make it normal. And yeah, I don't think anybody really has anything to be ashamed of when it comes to recovery or addiction. I think maybe there's shame in actively choosing to stay in it. But even if you relapse, that means that you're at least trying you're at least making an effort to like get back on track. But anyway. And luckily I never had to relapse. Um, but I had many friends who did and they're like, you know, they, they go, they would come back with shame in their eyes. Like, you know, I relapsed and did this like, dude, there's no shame in relapsing. The only shame is never coming back. <laughs> it's like, I'm glad you're here. 
Exactly. That's failing backwards. Failing backwards is doing the thing and like getting knocked down and deciding I'm going to stay on the floor because gravity is, makes it a lot easier to just stay down. Thank, thank God you came back, man. Yeah. I miss you. Mm-hmm. I miss you. You know, listening is usually the best part of recovery. <laughs> it was like, like, wow, you know, you're, I love talking to you. You're a really good listener. Like, yeah, I know. Like, I'm like to listen, you know, cause I know listening is better than just mouthing off and talking, you know? And there's a way to listen where you're actually, it's like, you know, the active listening thing and not just sitting there trying to cultivate your next response or think of what you're going to say or whatever, but like actually just hearing the other person. And I, I think that compulsion to like fix is, I don't know where that comes from. I think it's just human nature to see somebody who's in distress and want to help. But I think that can sometimes be more detrimental than beneficial. So sometimes it's better to just like, I'm going to just sit here and quietly share space with you. You know, and my wife says that she's uh, cause she didn't know me when I was using. So, you know, we've been married got almost 11 years now. And so when I tell her the stories of who I was, she has no idea. She's like, I am so glad I never met that person. But she says, it's like, it's like, yeah, I was kind of a fucking asshole. Mm-hmm. And uh, she goes, I don't know who that is. Yeah. Uh, but she's like, I love that you just listen to me and you don't offer to fix me or offer suggestions. You're just, yeah, I understand. You know, just listen, you know, it's not about, you know, when, and I believe you're right. People always want to offer suggestions, you know, of how to fix you. And it's like, no, I'm not talking to you because I need an answer. I'm just talking because I need someone to listen. And that's usually the best medicine for everything. Not like, yeah, you should do it this way. Mm-hmm. Unless you ask for it. Right. Yeah. If that's what you're seeking, then sure. But like if most of the time people just want to be heard and like want to be, want somebody to act as maybe a sounding board in a way to hear their thoughts out loud. I mean, that's why therapists exist, I guess. You, you said like it was around 24 when you decided or <laughs> thought that maybe you have a problem, mm-hmm. right? Cause that's the way, you know, nobody just wakes up, the, you know, the second day and like, Oh man, I need to get some help. Yeah. It's usually years and years and years. I got to do something. Tell me about your career path. Cause I don't know that part. I know that you did it, but I don't know why you chose that and why your career path is so important to you. Yeah, I mean, I so I started my career. Uh, I started working. Let's put it this way. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I was going to say I started working when I was like 15, you know, in like food service. And at, you know, 17, 18, I decided of least resistance it was it really was yeah (laughs) working at baskin robbins there was very little resistance there Uh, um but you know when i was in my later teens i decided i wanted to try to pursue acting and as you do you take on a waitressing job because that's they sort of go hand in hand and at the time like it felt okay because it was a means to an end and I was doing it to sort of help facilitate this career I was trying to cultivate or create or whatever anyway throughout this entire period though I was like deep in the eating disorder like it was very bad and so the idea of being a student or anything, doing anything more than what I was already doing was, it didn't feel feasible. 
Um, I was doing at that time the most that I could. But when I, you know, I, as you mentioned, I had been in and out of treatment several times from the time I was a teenager until I was most recently when I was 29. And hopefully that will be the last time. But it wasn't until that round of treatment that I had sort of this come to Jesus moment of like, I cannot go back to waiting tables. Um, it's a great profession for somebody who enjoys it. <laughs> I was not one of those people. Um, you can make a shitload of money. I probably made better money then than I make now, but it was keeping me stuck. And it was very, very closely associated to this like former life of mine, a life that I was trying to separate out of. And so it was when I was in treatment this last time, so was at this point, I guess, five years ago now, I had quit my job, a waitressing job that I'd had for maybe I don't know, six years or something like that. And I had every intention of never returning to that field, but I had no idea what to do because I didn't have an education to back up any career, really. Um, I'd gone to community college for like 10 minutes when I was 17 and decided, nope, I'm going to be an actor instead. And so I got very quickly derailed and whatever. But yeah, I had this epiphany of, I really feel drawn to recovery. I feel really compelled to work in this area. I don't know why. I just felt like it was something I wanted to do. And I assumed that you had to have all these credentials and all this experience and yada, yada. And it turns out you don't. <laughs> like, especially when it comes to, I don't know if this applies to other areas of uh, recovery, but with substance abuse, they'll hire somebody as long as they have a face and a driver's license. And fortunately I had both of those things. And so I just like started applying to like entry level treatment jobs. And I got a job as a like behavioral technician and started working in treatment and I loved it. And I really like felt it helped me, it helped me stay accountable. It helped me stay on track with my own recovery. Um, it made me feel purposeful, all these things that I had never really experienced as a, you know, member of the workforce before. Um, and you know, I just continued to work in that industry and I got, um, hired at a different facility about a year later, promoted within that company. And then I kind of hit the ceiling as far as what I can do with the education I don't have. And so basically now I am, I have resumed my education. I am in the process of applying to schools for my bachelor's. I have, you know, I'll be, uh, I think junior by the time I start, but anyway, um, so that's where I'm at. I'm pursuing social work. I don't know that I want to work in treatment for the rest of my life, but for now it's certainly where I feel the most drawn. And so I don't know like what the future holds in terms of career, I just know that I want to continue doing what I have been doing and see where it organically leads and not try to force anything right now. And I still have many, many years of schooling before I can do more than what I'm currently doing, which is case management, which I love, but, um, you know, I want to have more options. So anyway, that's, yeah, that's sort of how I found my way into that world. I was in the restaurant business also for many, many years because it was the path of least resistance. And there's a huge drug culture in the restaurant business. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yep. I would always have 
food. In case I didn't have any money to pay rent, I always had a meal. But once I moved away from that, it felt like I made a giant leap, like I was leaving my old life. And even in recovery, I was still um, cooking for, for a few years, but I realized I can't keep doing this. I don't know. There's there's a lot of growth in that. And yes, not, you know, you can't look at like, oh, it's going to take me years to do this. Like, you know what? I'm, no, I'm doing it. So eventually we'll get to the finish line. And that's what it's all about. It's not about how fast you get there. It's it. Yeah. You're actually doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll take as long as it takes. And I'm like, you know, I, I like what I do. I very much, I love what I do. And so I'm, I'm okay doing this for the foreseeable future. I just want to know that at some point, if I want to do something else, I'll be able to, you know? And I think also like there isn't any part of me that has regret around how long it took me to find my way back to school. The years that I spent working in treatment were beyond an education. Like I learned things that there is no comprehensible way I could have learned by being in a classroom. And so I have nothing but gratitude for the last five years and what I've um, been able to sort of glean. And it's given me a sense of direction. I didn't, you know, when I, it's funny when I was really young, like maybe, I don't know, nine or 10, I for some reason, really wanted to be a forensic psychologist. That was like the thing. I was like, I really like crime TV. I like true crime. I like psychology and the mind of the criminal was like fascinating to me. So I kind of like a little bit of a full circle thing here, not necessarily working with criminals, but um, psychology is very interesting to me and how the mind works is very interesting to me and, you know, how mysterious it is and how oftentimes misunderstood, but yeah, that's sort of the draw is like, there aren't, it's not math. And I hate math. And with math, there's like, perfect answers. And with psychology, there is no such thing as a perfect answer. There's no knowing. It's just guesswork. And that's kind of cool to me. So anyway, I don't think they can teach, you know, somebody who's not an addict, what it's like to be an addict out of a book. I think that you can understand it, but you, until you actually experience it, you have no idea what to, what it's really like. People suffering from addiction of some of some type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a different level of understanding, and like that's you know I, I work with a lot of people who have not experienced addiction, and they're great at what they do, but it's just different. Like their approach is different, and the way that they talk about it is different. And it's not to say that one is better or worse; it's just different. But you need all that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you do. Yeah. So I think there's value in somebody coming to it who doesn't have a background. And there's a different value in somebody coming to it who does have like an extensive background. But yeah, it's it's definitely like everything has sort of led me to here. And where I am right now, I'm okay with I do I wish I were further along in my recovery? Of course I do. Like I had a shit day yesterday where I made choices that I am not proud of. And does that mean that I have relapsed only if I allow it to, like I could continue moving in that direction and like fail backwards, as I was saying, or I could use it to incentivize me to like get my shit together and make better choices today. And that's, the goals, like all we have is this day that is today and we're, we're going to try to do the best we can with it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. This should be the goal for every day. I can imagine that uh, 
the word gratitude check comes into your mind all the time <laughs> when you're in uh, you know a facility like that. You know, because I know when I go to meetings and I listen to people like, oh my God, thank God I'm not out there anymore because that does not sound like fun at all because I don't want to lose everything that I have. You know, like sanity and and rational reasoning and you know people that i love not like you know cars and you know items the material shit right yeah, it's all internal yeah. like i would lose everything internal mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think you know we live in a culture that kind of gears us toward being you know a certain amount of materialistic sure um but we're we're sort of indoctrinated i think with this idea that it's never enough. No matter what you have, it's never enough. If you have an iPhone 11, it's not the 12 and you need the 12 because the 11 sucks and you're, you're a piece of shit because you don't have the 12. And it's, and here's the thing with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with being like aspirational or like wanting the next thing, the bigger thing, the better thing, because that's growth. I think that's progress. That's growth. But I will say, I think that is only dangerous when it's not paired with gratitude. So if you can't be grateful for what you already have, you have no right to want the next thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's fine to want the next thing as long as you can appreciate the thing that you already have, if that makes sense. Yes, because that is uh, the basis for all the addition. It is never enough. What I have now, I don't really like it because I need this. I need that. Mm -hmm. And I need it now. I need it right now. That's right. You know, one is too many, a thousand, never enough. Yeah, we don't, we're not very patient. Yeah, we don't know how to just like take the thing that we have and be okay with it and know that like if we're meant to have the next thing, we will eventually have the next thing. And the only caveat with that is like, I don't know, like the whole manifestation thing and putting intention into the universe and whatever, and then shit just like falls into your lap. I think that's like a line of bullshit that they're trying to sell because what they neglect to, and by they, I don't know who I'm talking about, just the collective they, I guess. But what isn't talked about as much is the work that's required. Like it's one thing to say, I want a million dollars, you know, and be like, okay, well, I put that in the universe. I like made a vision board with a million dollars on it. And so I'm going to be a millionaire. It's like, no, you actually have to like do the thing that is required in order to generate a million dollars. You can't just say that like putting it out there in the universe is enough. I can visualize it. It's going to happen. I can visualize it. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I, I drew a picture of it. And so therefore. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. it doesn't really work like that. Yeah, not so much. So what were some of the great outcomes that you found out about yourself from from being in recovery? Like things you liked or believed in or or believe in, like are passionate about? Do you view yourself like as a, a strong woman in the current world with uh, so many like messed up things going on? How do you how do you view yourself or what are what are some of the things you've learned about yourself that have come out from all that? Yeah, I think I view myself, uh, and this is going to sound like, I don't know, however it sounds kind of hokey, but I'm a work in progress. Like I have not gotten to where I would like to be in my recovery yet with eating disorders. It's, you're sort of trained to never think of it in terms of being recovered, but you're in recovery. Like there's just, it's a, it's a daily constant battle. But I think the one of the main things I've learned 
is to like practice, I guess, grace and patience and kindness and know that like, I'm doing the best I can today and it's the best I can do. And if it's not perfect, that's fine because perfection for all intents and purposes is a myth, unless it's something that's measurable, in which case, sure, you can be perfect at, you know, bowling or something, but I can't recover perfectly and that's fine. I just have to know that I'm making the best effort I can on any given day. And if I'm not making the best effort to be curious and to say like, hmm, I wonder what's going on where I felt like I needed to do four exercise classes today and eat, you know, two meals, like what's happening in my life that feels, you know, that's compelling me to make those choices. I don't know. I think I learned that the whole perfection being a myth thing is obviously kind of a cliche at this point, but I have lowered sometimes in certain moments, the expectations I have for myself. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the whole like kindness and compassion, self-compassion and all that. I don't know, this gets into a whole other conversation that I don't know that you want to get into right now. But I think sometimes people use like self-compassion as an excuse to make bad choices. They're like, well, I'm just being kind to myself by, you know, doing exactly the thing that I know I shouldn't be doing. But I do think that it's important to be, you know, humane and find the, find the compassion, even when you don't feel like you really deserve it. I rely on my friends who know me to call me on my bullshit. Dude, that is not right what you are doing. And you need to fucking take a look at that. This probably comes from, you know, the the whole thing of like, I need the the honest criticism because I learned more from that instead of just glossing things over and the whole, you know, I'm just being, I'm being good to myself is usually by indication means my addiction is in full force here and I'm just going to let it happen Uh as long as I don't go to jail or kill anybody or, you know, hurt somebody really, really bad. It's still okay. Right, right, right. It's very permissive. It's very like, um, like a get out of jail free card by saying like, oh, I'm just being kind to myself or whatever. Like, yeah, I think it is important to be kind to yourself, but also to hold yourself to like certain standards and be accountable for your choices. Like that's also important. If I have to tell myself that, that means my addiction is, you know, Bob's back in town. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's what, Absolutely. that's what's going on. Yeah. Uh-huh. It never ends. No, it doesn't. It's a constant battle. They always used to say you could never get arrested for what you're thinking. You just, you know, shouldn't act on that crap. Like uh, the stuff that goes on in my head is just out there. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. It's the same thing. Like feelings can't kill you, but the 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 reaction that you have to those feelings can. Good thing to keep in mind. <laughs> and then now I know that feelings are the most important part of my recovery. Is like I actually enjoy those feelings. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I I get that. I get that. I have a really my whole relationship with my dad and like his passing is fucking weird. But I don't have a lot of feelings about him. I don't think about him all that much. Um, I'm very detached from any sort of grief I might be experiencing. Um, But when I do have those fleeting moments of feeling, I'm so grateful for them. And I'll sometimes seek it out where I'll be like, I'm just going to sit down and look through like old pictures and see if I can get myself to feel something because those feelings are what make you feel. Yeah. Connected. 
you know, and I miss my sister so much. You know, she's, uh, you know, she was like you and Jeremy, like your brother, you have a very strong bond. We have the same bond that you and Jeremy have, you know, it's, it's bonded out of shared experiences and diseases and you hold on to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, my absolute worst nightmare is if something were to happen to my brother, like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you come back from something like that. Um, especially when you have like that close of a relationship, I don't, I don't know. It's unfathomable. So I just, I feel for you and I, I can't begin to even know what that would be like. Yeah. And I knew I couldn't save her. I used to go to OA meetings with her and OA conventions and she was going to go to a treatment center and then she died the day before she was supposed to leave. It's just horrible. Ooh, just yeah. It's, yeah. it's hard to watch. Yeah. It really is. And I didn't, there was nothing I could do. Exactly. And to like know how powerless you are in that moment over somebody else's choices. Like, I mean, it's one thing to feel powerless in regards to your own choices, but to really know that when it comes to somebody else, you are in fact completely powerless. Like you cannot, you can't control somebody else's behavior. You just can't. And like, you can help them and encourage them and support them, not even help, but just encourage and support them. But at the end of the day, like they're going to do what they're going to do. And that's the whole horrible part of addiction, especially from the the person in it and the people around it. Cause it's not just a personal disease. It's a family disease and a friend disease oh, yeah. and a loved one disease. Yeah. It affects everyone. I just destroyed a five mile radius around me, like a nuclear bomb. Yeah. I don't know. I, I have this thing where I want to be able to say that I, had slash continue to have an eating disorder. And instead of being embarrassed by that, to feel like proud of it. And I think that the further I move into recovery, the prouder I can become of that statement. The more stuck I decide to stay, the more shame will be enshrouding that whole idea. So just the, just onwards and upwards, I guess. But there's a huge stigma still around eating disorders. The whole alcoholism and drug addiction is pretty well documented on television and everything like that and people in recovery and yada, yada, yada. But eating disorders are still looked at as some kind of stigma or a lack of willpower or or some kind of other, well, you know, if you just, uh, you know, because people don't understand that one at all. Oh, yeah. With anorexia and bulimia, it's like, oh, that's a vanity thing. And with compulsive overeating, binge eating. That's a will willpower thing. Oh yeah. It's willpower. Yeah. You just need to knock that shit off. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Just like, and the associations we have with people who are overweight or like are in larger bodies and the amount of like fat phobia that just is rampant in our culture. um, It's, it's like nauseating. And that's been a really big part of like my I guess, recovery journey, I guess, if you will. It's like um, learning to challenge and talk back to the, like the fat phobia and the the associations we have with that body type and like what we've come to idealize not being attainable for anyone in a healthy way. I mean, unless you're just like born into that body and like whatever. Body acceptance and body positivity and like all that bullshit are not bullshit. Like it's, it's important. And especially if you are struggling with like body image or body dissatisfaction and, you know, again, like the whole perspective thing of like, does my body work? Can I 
get up and walk across the room if I need to. Yes, I can. Okay, then like calm down. You're fine. Just because it doesn't aesthetically look a certain way um, shouldn't really mean anything. Well, that's hard. Yeah. Especially, you know, when people are not nice to you about it. Uh, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. People can be very... Or judgmental. Yeah, very cruel and closed-minded. But anyway. Is there anything you would like to add? I don't know. I just, I can't thank you enough for doing, like, honestly, I, the, what I said before about this being like a holy healing experience, I, 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 it, it has been. And I encourage anybody who feels like they might have some uh, amends that need to be made to go ahead and make them because it, it feels really good. You know, I think funnily enough, the thing that initially drew like drove a wedge between us has brought us closer than anything else could have. So it's interesting how that happened. You know, I love you, Kayla. You know, it's I like I'm so, I'm so proud of you that you you found your way out because it was hard to watch and hard to be in. Mm-hmm. But uh, I always had to have faith something good was going to happen somewhere down the line. You know, it just took a few years, which it always does. I feel a very strong bond with you. You know, when we were living, you know, and like you used to come over and, you know, and you and Jeremy, like I had a really strong bond with Jeremy because we have the same sense of humor. As time goes on, I feel a stronger bond to you because of what you've gone through and the similarities of you and my sister. Yeah. I I can't even begin to express how grateful I am for that connection and um, things could have gone such a different way and I'm just glad they didn't. And that could have been like regret that I would have to be sitting on and living with for like the remainder of my life, but I don't have to. And that's very exciting for me. So I really appreciate you reaching out and like wanting to actually do this and Yeah. And I think like you sharing your story is the biggest gift. Like you have no idea how important that is. So. Yeah. And I couldn't share this when you were 10 years old. (laughs) Right. No, of course. (laughs) I mean, you could have, but that would have been weird. Yeah. Well, you weren't really wanted to hear it from me anyway, because well, I don't think you wanted to hear it from anybody. Yeah. Uh I know. I didn't want to hear anything from anybody. You got to tell the story of the the original introduction to Brent's story. Yes. Um, okay, so this is one of my first working memories of Brent. Um, so, as was mentioned earlier, he and my mom met through Narcotics Anonymous, and my mom was there as a result of a previous relationship, which I had a pretty full knowledge of. Um, I knew that she had gotten involved with somebody and he had gotten her involved with drugs. And now here she is in recovery. And she used to cart my brother and myself to meetings with her when we were kids, because I don't know, she either thought they would be somehow beneficial or she just didn't know what else to do with us. So she would take us with her. And I know that she met Brent in one of those rooms and I was immediately extremely wary, skeptical. So I was like, Oh, here's some guy she's meeting in NA um, after having just been in relationship with an addict. And I was like, this is going to go probably one very uh, predictable way. And so anyway, uh, didn't really give him the benefit of the doubt. I just assumed that he was still probably an addict. And I remember being at my mom's house when 
I don't know, it must've been like eight. And Brent, I think had just moved in and I was looking in the kitchen for something and I open up a drawer and it's just a drawer full of syringes. And I was like, Oh, that's good. That's a, that's a good thing to see. Uh, and so I immediately was like, well, my mom's dating a fucking heroin addict or some like junkie or something like that. And then, you know, later come to, to come to learn that they were his insulin syringes <laughs> because he's diabetes <laughs> and like the most innocuous possible thing. And I immediately was like, oh, well, here we go again. But anyway, that was that was my first real memory of Brent was his drawer of needles. Oh, my mom's dating another freaking drug uh, addict. Yeah. Yeah, like, oh, great, yeah. 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 But, you know, could not have been more wrong. So, well, it's, well good. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to be a drug addict or an active drug addict. Yeah, that must have been pretty scary. I don't remember. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say it was just like panic, but I, I really don't remember. I just remember that visual of like the little like orange tipped syringes. Yeah. You know, I'd go to restaurants and uh, I used to be really ashamed to give myself shots where I was sitting. Because uh, I have to bring up vials, you know, it's old days, right? <laughs> I got a vial yeah. and a big long needle, and I'm drawing liquid out of a. So I used to go in the restrooms, <laughs> right? Because I felt shame. Somebody came in and saw me doing that. And next thing I know, there's two cops coming into the restroom. Oh, like, no. what's going on here, man? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, people just don't know how to mind their own business. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I'm like, all right, yeah, that's cool. Like, yeah, because we've all. You know, like, what's he shooting up in the men's room? (laughs) Classic. Now some fun stuff. Yes. What's your favorite movie? Oh, my God. Um, Holy shit. If I had to, oh, man. Jurassic Park is up there. Blazing Saddles is up there. Um, I don't know why I love Silence of the Lambs as much as I do, but I do. Uh, It's weird. It's a weird one. Um... I don't know. I'm a big Mel Brooks fan. I'm big, you know, I like P.T. Anderson. I like uh, Coen Brothers, like Big Lebowski has got to be up there. Uh, I don't know. I like Judd Apatow. One of my favorite movies is Magnolia. Oh, Magnolia is killer. That scene where she goes to get the prescriptions oh refilled and she's like, do not call me lady. Do not call me lady. She like freaks out. It's amazing. It is an acting power fest from oh my every God. single person. Like, it's just amazing. Yeah. I know. I know. And I'm, I'm a big, big uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman fan. And he was in like all of P.T. Anderson's he movies. Was, yeah. And like, mm-hmm. oh, such a fucking loss. Like speaking of addiction, um, I, that's, that was a hard one. But yeah, I love, I love that movie. That's probably my it's favorite. So that Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. Oh, it's so good. Oh, that's funny. I watched There Will Be Blood the other night. Did you really? I haven't seen that in forever. Well, like since it came out. I haven't seen it in so long. Oh, he is such... Daniel Day-Lewis is amazing. Mm -hmm. Bastard in a basket. Yeah, I don't know. He gets something out of all his actors. Of course, the writing's really good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that helps. That helps. But yeah, he he has a way, I think, with actors. Favorite play? Ooh. Favorite play... Probably something Tennessee Williams, maybe really? Glass Menagerie. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I don't know. I just love his writing. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other. There's a. I was in a play called The Rabbit Hole or Rabbit Hole. I can't even honestly remember the name, but it's such a well written, just really sharp 
uh, poignant, like evocative, like a very good play. Mark Current. Is this when you were younger or older? No, this was, uh, I think I was 21. Yeah. It was when I was like doing the acting thing um, at the school that I had been attending. Yeah. Favorite recording artist? Uh, Bob Dylan. God damn it. Yeah. I mean, I, so my favorite band, my favorite band is the national, which I just don't, I, I don't know why I'm so like, I have this gravitational pull. I just love them. Um, I also really like the war on drugs, funnily enough. <laughs> okay. Um, if you don't know the war on drugs, Brent, you got to check them out. I will uh, check they, them out. They, they, uh, conjure some like Bob Dylan, Tom Petty vibes, feels, feels vibes. Um, I feel like you would like them. I will give them a shot. Okay. Favorite holiday. Ooh, holidays are hard, man. Cause they, they're just the food thing. It's always the food thing. And it's also the family thing of like, I was very removed from my family for a very long time. So I, I mean, if I had to pick a holiday, if you know, it's in one breath, I say the food is hard for me, but then I say, well, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Um, but I think because it's around my brother's birthday. So that's always celebrated with Thanksgiving. Um, and I just like that time of year. I like the holiday season. I like winter when actually we have one. Um, <laughs> like I, today, just, I think it dipped down to 72 degrees today. Oh, I know. It was a frigid 84 in like Woodland Hills. It's insane. It's so weird. But yeah, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah, that was always a fun time. Yeah, yeah. I am so glad you decided to do this. I wasn't really sure. Oh my god! Of course, I would be. Ins- I would be insane to say no. There you go. There you <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, I'd be insane. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you for joining the Insanity Project. Oh my god, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening. I really want to thank Kayla for joining me in the studio today. If you have any comments or suggestions, I can be found at theinsanityproject.com.